I'll let you in on a little secret. Reaching your revenue goal won't change your life, but hitting your profit goal, that absolutely will. If you want to build a life-first business this year, you need to create more margin, both in your finances and in your schedule. If you're ready to double down on profit-generating strategies that actually work so you can work four-day weeks, go on real vacations, or even take the summers off, you won't want to miss this. In my free masterclass, Double Your Profit While Working Less, you'll learn exactly how to set your business up to scale so you can give yourself a raise, create a clear plan for how to work that dream schedule, and step into your CEO era, the one where you and your business aren't just surviving, but thriving. You can grab this free masterclass at www.jadeboyd.co backslash double your profit masterclass or go to the link in the show notes. Now back to the show. Welcome to the Business Minimalist Podcast, a podcast about redefining productivity for the modern woman in business and finding ways to work smarter, not harder in business and life. I'm your host, Jade Boyd. I'm an MBA business strategist and mentor who helps overwhelmed business owners simplify and scale their service-based businesses with strategy and systems. On this podcast, we'll explore simple ways to earn more while working less. If you're ready to scale your business, bring order to chaos, ditch the busy work, and make space for what really matters, you come to the right place. Welcome to the Business Minimalist Podcast. Today, I am really excited to bring Janie Stahl to the podcast. Janie is a fractional CFO for service-based business owners, and I've had the opportunity to get to know her pretty well over the past few months, and she's become a really good friend of mine. So I'm really excited, if you haven't met Janie, for you to hear more about what she's doing and her passion behind her work and just the amazing services that she's providing for small business owners. So Janie, welcome. Why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself? Thank you, Jade. I'm excited for today. So I live in Williamsburg, Iowa with my family. I'm married and we have two kids and I serve small businesses across the United States as their fractional CFO. So tell us how did you become a fractional CFO? What was kind of your journey into entrepreneurship and how did you decide on that type of business? Yeah, great question. So um, I went to the University of Iowa. I majored in finance and human resources and interned and then got a job at an asset management corporation right out of college. And so I went the finance route, but I always loved human resources. And while I got my master's degree, I loved organizational development in particular. And so I had this seed planted that with some of my MBA professors, they had also had a similar background where they climbed up the corporate ladder and then decided to start their own consulting firm. And I thought that sounded really neat, but I did not at that time have the courage to jump ship. And so I just thought, oh, you know, like maybe I'm not meant to be an entrepreneur. And then we had our first son. And when he was five months old, we went through... (laughs) Like his babysitter on the second day, on my second day back to work, his babysitter quit. (laughs) And so we were scrambling to find daycare. And then at the same time, and I had no work-life balance, I drove one hour one way to work. And I was pretty disappointed that I only got to see my newborn baby like for an hour each night. And so one of my friends started a consulting company and he was hedging on the board. So trading futures and options which was right up my alley because I had been working in investments and in asset management. But then he also was providing like CFO type services. And so we were working with agricultural companies. And I realized that it wasn't just 
farmers who were having this very similar issue of not really knowing what was making them money, what was losing them money. And so I wanted to be able to serve people in my way. And so I knew of a few marketing agencies. And so I reached out to them and went off on my own and just started offering the CFO services to marketing agencies at first. And then it kind of evolved from there. So for someone who's never heard of a fractional CFO, what should a small business be looking for? Like, what are the benefits of working with a CFO? And when do you know when it's time to have more advice than just what a bookkeeper or a CPA can give you? Sure. So CFO stands for Chief Financial Officer. And then there's two terms for this. There's fractional or virtual. So fractional really just means part-time. Virtual means online. And so we have seen this evolution in this space in particular of that merging together. So a lot of times, if you hear of a virtual CFO or fractional CFO, they're probably both part-time and online. I would say the benefits are that it's customized to your business. So I think one of the very first hires or one of the very first things that businesses usually outsource is their taxes because you have to file your taxes every year. And so there are a lot of great CPAs. Uh, The challenge can be that they are so busy and they have so many tax filings to submit within a short amount of time that they may be lacking, like that business owner might be lacking some custom advice to their business or to their personal financial situation outside of their business. And then also they may not be very proactive. So I would say the benefits of a CFO are that You have someone who understands the nitty gritty of your business finances and can really dig into the data and into the analytics of your business, but also they have a strategic like bird's eye view on how do we bring together your business income, your spouse's income, your personal income, how do we look at your entire financial situation and like make smart decisions based on all of that. Yeah, that makes sense. Finance is not my thing. And I really appreciate just your mind and the way it works in a strategic sense because finance can be super complicated, especially the larger a business grows. And to have that big picture financial view, like I really value (laughs) having you as a friend because it's so valuable just to pick your brain because you do see things like very differently than I see things from like a marketing strategy standpoint. One thing that I really want to focus on that I think a lot of service-based business owners struggle with is setting financial goals because there's so many ways that you can go about it. And again, looking at the big picture, what's kind of the process that you take clients through when they're thinking about what am I going to make next year? What are the things that they need to be thinking about and how do they set realistic financial goals? (laughs) So surprisingly, or not so surprisingly, I think that you and I have a very similar outlook on this or approach to it. So I also start with their vision. I think regardless of the type of goals you are setting, I think it's important to look at your personal vision and then try to align your business to that. So I would be looking at what does success mean to you? What is your vision for your just overall well-being? Like what purpose does this business serve and do you ever want to sell it or how big do you want to get? Um, And then I think from there, then you can back down or it's easier to make decisions when you know that. And so then I back it down into step two is we'll look at your five-year goal. So where do we need to be in five years to be closer to that long-term vision? And then from there, you can back it down to one year. So where do I need to be next year or one year from now in order to be closer to that? And so then you can, you know, just keep refining that and get more granular as you look at the specific steps that you need to take today. 
kind of taking that down a step further, I think a lot of entrepreneurs have really big financial goals and they try to accomplish everything in a year. Or even if they have realistic financial goals, oftentimes it's really hard to break that down and know like, okay, well, what do I have to do today if I want to achieve this by the end of the year? What's some advice that you have for people who have big goals but are kind of stuck and not knowing what to do next? Yeah. So, I mean, you're not alone if you are struggling with this. And I will say personally that I don't always hit my own sales goals because I'm an Enneagram one. And so my expectations are always super high for myself. So if you find yourself in that situation, I guess I would ask yourself, is this goal realistic? Like who said that you needed to hit that? Why do you feel that you need to hit that particular goal? And then, like I mentioned earlier, I would ask yourself, like, what does success look like? What do you want your legacy to be? I think it's interesting that wealth is kind of arbitrary, you know, like there might be a billionaire who feels like they're in poverty and that it's not enough. And there might be somebody else who doesn't have as much and they feel like they're very wealthy. So you have to look at it within your context and (laughs) it sounds cheesy, but what you want out of life and out of your business. Yeah. I mean, it makes a ton of sense, but in reality, that's really hard to do because it's so easy, especially in the world of social media, to just look left and right and people celebrating their big revenue goals. But on the other side of that, I want to talk a little bit about profit goal setting too, because I do think it's really easy to focus on the revenue and maybe a little bit easier to break down, okay, how many sales do we need to make to hit that goal? What advice do you have for profit planning and like knowing how to hit that number at the end of the year? Yeah. So I would include those metrics in your KPIs or some of those goals that you should try to hit. I think you should have a revenue goal. You should also be monitoring your expenses. And then you should have a goal for what net income or profit margin you want to hit. So I would look at, I think the very first step is you have to be aware of the numbers. And that's where oftentimes There's a large part of the business population that I will never work with because people are too scared to look at their numbers. And so I've had a lot of entrepreneurs I've worked with where they said they were really scared to get started and to even know where they stood, but they felt a lot more confident and a lot more empowered after they did know the numbers. And so, I mean, a number is just a number. (laughs) It's the, you have to be mindful of the emotions that you're attaching to it. So I would say look back at your, you know, start tracking your numbers so that you know where you're currently falling. And then from there, you can start to set goals. Is there a certain benchmark? Maybe it varies from industry, but is there a benchmark percentage of profit that people should be aiming for? Yeah. So industry neutral, I would say 10% is a healthy profit margin that you can try to hit. And so that is you take your net income and you divide by your sales revenue. That's your profit margin. Are there any other um, like key metrics that you use besides revenue and profit? Yeah. So again, it, it depends on your industry, what is important and what are the key operating factors and profitability factors. But I would look at, not necessarily that this is a metric, but I would try to be mindful or evaluate which service or product is making you money or losing you money. But as far as metrics that make it easy for you to you can just like Google search for your industry. What is the average for this? You can look at your labor, your labor over your revenue, cost of goods sold. You can look at some of these things are kind of hard, but some balance sheet metrics are like current ratio, 
another hard thing to calculate is like the return on your investments. But a lot of those balance sheet metrics, those are the things that if you ever go to a bank and you want to get a loan, they're going to be evaluating that. So you can always, like I said, like you can Google what is considered good or what is the average for your industry. But I also understand that like the return on your investment, yeah, it's good to know, but I don't know, it can be hard to calculate and maybe you don't necessarily need to know that within your first three years. Yeah. So when it comes to profit margin, obviously that's a huge factor in how you price services to make sure that they're actually profitable at the end of the day. I think there's a lot of different ways that I see service-based businesses trying to set their prices. And oftentimes it's like an emotional decision at the end of the day, even if they have all the numbers down. What's sort of the process that you go through to make sure that a service is priced profitably, but it's also marketable? Yeah. So I do look at the competition and I think there's three things that you need to look at and you need to weigh all together. One is your competition because you know, it's great to look at your value, which is another factor, but to a certain extent, your consumers are going to be comparing your price to other competitors. And so you need to know, like, where's the ballpark for my service or for my product? So the first thing to look at is your competitor's pricing for that particular service or product, if you can find it. The second one is looking at how much time you put into it and the expenses that you have to cover. So do you have equipment? Do you have loans that like operating loans that you need to cover that go into overhead? Do you have contractors that you need to pay? Are there certain systems that you have to use in order to run your business? So I would pull all of that together and then look at, again, for your industry, like what would be a competitive wage for your time? So if you're making, like if a lawyer or CPA is other lawyers or CPAs are charging $200, $300 an hour, then look at how much time you're putting into it and assign a wage to that. The last factor to look at is the value. So either the value of the problem you are solving or the value of the result you are delivering. I think that's most important and where people can kind of get tripped up is you can get stuck into only charging an hourly rate. But for a lot of us service-based businesses or consultants or coaches, you really need to look at what is the value that you're bringing because that's most likely going to exceed the time that you put into it. Yeah. So at the end, you come up with like a range or at the end of that process, is it kind of like, here's what the price should be? Yeah. So I look at all those three factors together. I would try to set a range of the minimum is going to be the time that you're putting into it and the expenses you need to cover. But then I think your max could either be your competition or the value that you think you are delivering. Yeah. What are some of the barriers that you, some of your clients, have when it comes to pricing their services, especially when it comes to raising prices, because I know that's hard for a lot of people to do. Yeah. So one of them is very fair. And I do think you need to be respectful to a current client. So the first one is, well, I don't want to raise rates on current clients. I don't want to lose that business. And there are a lot of things to consider when you're doing that. And there are respectful ways to do that too. The other barrier is mindset, which I, you know, I'm happy to get into, but I guess it's funny how I feel like we get defensive when we, when someone questions our price, but yet if we think through our process and how we're talking about our business and how willing we are to talk about the price, we kind of already give the consumer the illusion that 
we are not confident in our pricing. Yeah. Do you see a difference between your clients who are men and your clients who are women when it comes to money mindset? Yes. And there's a lot of data that backs this up. I don't know if you could probably find data specific to entrepreneurs, but there is so much data that talks about, you know, more women than men are financially illiterate. More women than men do not invest and do not have retirement savings. So there's a lot of data that backs that up just when you look at like personal wealth. But even specific to business owners, yes, I keep seeing over and over again that if I have a male client, nine times out of 10, he is not going to be concerned about his price or raising his price, whereas a female client would be. Do you have a guess or know based on research like why that is? Well, let's talk about mindset a little bit and get into this because I think this is why. So mindset is the belief that you have, which is formed on your past experiences. And so we have to think about history. And I can't remember who I was talking to about this, but when I talked to my mom and then my grandmother, you know, it wasn't that long ago that women could not own land. And it wasn't that long ago that a woman had to get her husband's consent for a lot of different things. Like she could not get a credit card or could not get a loan. And so if you just think about the history, there's a lot that goes into that. You know, we didn't really have, we didn't start seeing divorce rates or seeing women be financially or have to be financially independent until the last few decades. So you think about, okay, your grandma had a different mindset around money, and then your mom had a different mindset around money, and then now you. And so that has just continued to evolve with each generation and what was going on in the world. And so I think that is a large part of it. I mean, I'm sure there's a whole bunch of like neuroscience on like to really dig into the psychology of men and women, but I don't know that much about that. (laughs) So what can we do as women to kind of overcome that? Because it's a really necessary thing. I mean, there are certain decisions that need to be made. And even though it's emotional to run a successful business, sometimes you have to like overcome some of those barriers. What are things that we can do to be able to be a little bit more objective when it comes to pricing or making financial decisions for our businesses? Yeah. So I would say try to reframe that mindset. So it's the same as when you have negative thoughts about anything or when you are feeling like negative emotions that aren't serving you. Reframing your thoughts is the same process. But for money in particular, I would look at first, I would say, just look at the definition of money and wealth. So money, the definition of it is it's the medium of exchange or a measure of value or a means of payment. Wealth is an abundance of material possessions or resources. So like I said earlier, it's really interesting how everybody defines wealth differently and everybody has a different measure of what is enough or what is considered wealthy. And so we are attaching emotions to a number, whether it's our revenue or our profit or our savings account, And that's based on our mindset. And so the past experiences that we had with money or how our family talked about money growing up. So I think you need to evaluate what is the emotion that I'm drawing from this situation? What is the goal in particular that I'm trying to hit? And like I said, like, why is that so important? What are other, I guess, not so extrinsic things that I can use to measure my success? So I would start with that. 
I'm curious to know what your personal experience has been, because obviously you're a woman working in finance. I know from my experience, I think there was only one woman in my whole class who chose to specialize in finance in my MBA program. And it's like a field that is very male dominated. What has your experience been being someone who's helping other people overcome money mindset? Is that something that you're overcoming yourself too? Or has it been easier for you just because of your background? So I don't struggle with worrying about I don't have a poverty mentality or I don't necessarily, I think a lot of people, if they grew up struggling with money, if their family struggled with money, they say that even like billionaires, they have this ultimate fear of not having enough or being back in that same place. And so I don't necessarily operate from that fear. I'm more of a growth mentality. Like I want to keep hitting goals and just keep going. And so I do struggle with my own pricing, though. That part of the money mindset I have struggled with. And I think that is comes down to we are in the Midwest, and so prices are a little bit lower. We have a lower cost of living. And so my opinion on what a particular product or service, what I should pay for that is probably lower than like an East Coast or West Coast person. And so then when I look at my competition or I just look at similar services, I think about like, is that really fair? And so I have had to evaluate for myself. And really, one way I've been able to get around that is I started tracking my time. So all of the time that I spend that goes into my business, I started tracking it. And I realized that Like for me, running a business is very different than a photographer, right? And so I have to work every single day. Like I work six days a week. And so when I add up all of the time that I'm putting into it, and then I also look at the value I'm delivering and I'm able to, I try to measure like what was the revenue and what was the profit margin when I started with the client and then where did they end up and what were the problems that we solved? Like, can I assign a a value or a dollar amount to that? And so that has helped me when I feel like I'm slipping into that, like, Ooh, I don't know if I can raise my price. I'll go back at that and look at the numbers. That's the part about finance that I love is the data speaks for itself. (laughs) Numbers don't lie. They're objective. Yes. Yes. Kind of going along with being a woman and a business owner and finance, I think a lot of people struggle to know what to do when it comes to planning maternity leave, especially as a service provider, especially as a solopreneur. It's a conversation that I've had like several times. And I know that you help other people plan for this maybe as business owners, but you've also done it yourself. So just wondering, what are your tips and advice from a financial perspective that we could do to be able to plan if we know we're going to need to take a maternity leave? What are some of the steps we can do to make sure that financially our business is stable while we take a break? Sure. So first, just from a financial perspective and like trying to establish how much you should have set aside in savings and how your business could run without you, I would, again, start with tracking your numbers as soon as possible. So knowing what is your monthly revenue, what are your monthly expenses, are you profiting? I also, you also need to look at like if you have credit cards or if you have loan payments or if you have owner's withdrawals, those things are not going to show up on your profit and loss. So you need to be mindful of your entire cash flow. So I would look at your profit and loss just so you know your revenue and your expenses, but then also add in your distributions, loan payments, credit card payments, anything that is taking up cash that is not on your profit and loss. So get a sense of where are you at right now, and then you can look at 
the last few months or however much data you have, you can kind of see what the trends are month to month. So then you can see what are the expenses that I absolutely have to cover on a monthly basis. As far as a savings goal, I would try to have one month of your operating expenses saved. Depends on how big your business is. If you're a multi-million dollar company, that means having millions of dollars in savings, which I don't recommend you have millions of dollars of cash sitting there. So this is more prevalent for like small businesses. Yeah. But if you know that you have that nest egg that, okay, if I offload a client or if I can't bring on any more clients and my revenue goes down a little bit, you can start to see that minimum or that threshold of this is what I need like just to get by or I do have savings if worse comes to worse and I don't have sales revenue coming in for that month or two months or however long it is. So I would start with that. As far as just the operations and like how do you get your business to run without you, I think there is an entire, I mean, it could take you months to really get this set up the way you want it. But I would remind yourself specific to maternity leave, this is such a short season in your entire life. It's up to you, but you have your entire life to build your business. And so I have two kids. We would love to have more. And so I have to remind myself, and I'm a very goal-driven person. And so I'm in that season right now where it's like in between kids, I'm like, okay, hustle. Because <laughs> I know things are going to slow down. And when I have had a baby, I just remind myself that I have one year with this baby and the whole point of maternity leave in this first year is bonding with my baby. I'm going to have so many other years to take on more clients and to expand and work with more people. And it also helped me that tactically I took, I'm trying to think, I took off one month where I did not work at all. I communicated as soon as I could to my clients that, hey, I'm going to take one month off. I looked at the clients I was working with, how much time it was taking me, which projects did I have to complete or which work did I really have to do? And then I just communicated with them up front, like, hey, I think this is what absolutely has to be done, but these other things, can we hold off for like two months? And we worked that out. And then I gradually went back after that. So I started working one day a week and then two days a week and gradually worked myself back to full-time. So I didn't go back to working full-time until six months. And I felt so much relief from the mom guilt issue because I was like, I had six months with my baby like, and this was our second child. And I didn't get that with my first child. And so that really helped me to know that really that entire first year I was focused on my baby. And then I didn't have the guilt that I was like, okay, after that first year, then I'll get back into my business and I won't feel guilty for my clients either. Yeah. Were there things when it came to like either planning for or taking a maternity leave that seemed harder than you thought they would be or maybe easier than you thought they would be? So we, I'm trying to think of when we had, when Hayden, our second child was nine months old, that's when COVID hit and we did not have daycare. So this is a like glaringly obvious answer, but I feel like a lot of moms were in this situation and even I think we're lucky in the Midwest, but I think a lot of people are still struggling with this of it's really hard to, in my type of business, I have meetings almost every day with my clients. And so it was like constant. I mean, I kid you not, there would be almost every week or every two weeks, we did not have daycare. And so it was so hard to balance that and juggle and figure out like between 
And luckily, you know, I'm privileged that I have a spouse that could help me and could take time off. But it was very challenging to literally have a toddler who can't entertain themselves and a baby sitting on my lap while I'm trying to have a client call because we couldn't cancel the client call, you know. So just the unpredictability and the stress from that, it was a very stressful year, two years. And I think a lot of people went through that and are still going through it. So I give them all the credit in the world. Yeah, not easy to do. Was there anything that seemed easier than you thought it would be? That you're able to, or I was able to work while Hayden napped. (laughs) If I couldn't get her to lay in the crib, I just laid her on my chest and I could still like type on my laptop. Yeah. So I'm trying to think of what else was easier. It's so hard to know whether it's like nature or nurture, but I do think that by me not setting a, I learned with COVID and with having unpredictable daycare, I just had to let go of my to-do list because that was when I was stressed. If I had no expectations for that day, like the weekends were fine. You know, it was those days where I knew I had a client meeting or I knew I had a deliverable I had to get done. And if I couldn't execute on that, I felt terrible for the client. And so it was just for me, like releasing my own expectations and then communicating to the client. And most of the time, it wasn't even the client that was upset. (laughs) It was just my own bar. Right. I love what you have been saying about productivity being seasonal almost and like business and motherhood fluctuating. I'm not a mom, so I haven't experienced it myself, but I've heard a lot of entrepreneurs kind of struggle with that idea of like, how do I have kids and also maintain this productivity in every season? It's really hard to do. I think productivity can be seasonal and it depends on what your needs are from season to season. And like you said, you only get six months with a newborn or like up to a year to have that baby in your arms. And it's okay to take a break and decide to prioritize your family over your business for a season. It doesn't mean it's forever, which my mind always goes to, I don't want to make that decision because it's forever, (laughs) but it's not true. Yeah. And I would, to that point, I, one tactical thing I do is at least once a year, if not quarterly, I list like the four or five roles that I have in my life. And so you could either look at this as like different areas of well-being, or you could look at your roles. So I look at business owner, mom, wife, friend, and I rank them and I force myself to say, what will I prioritize in this time? Because I know it is impossible to give equal amounts of time to each thing. And then for me, it was not feeling guilty about that prioritization. And so I learned with, because Jensen would have been our firstborn, Jensen would have been a baby when I started my business. And I do remember my husband sitting down and saying like, you are working every single night and every weekend. And this is not what I had in my vision when you said you were starting a business. And so I was like, okay, like, thank you for that. I need to evaluate what is most important to me right now. I kind of backed off a little bit, but I also told him this business is not going to get started if it's not for me. And so this is going to be like a few months of it being really hard and me being distracted. But I promise you that after five, six months, my priorities will change. So again, luckily he was able to... (laughs) collaborate with me on that. Yeah, for sure. Knowing the end date is important sometimes. (laughs) And that's also something you talk with your clients about, right? Because I think a lot of your clients also have the same values in wanting to have a business that's scalable and, you know, hit those financial metrics and be strategic and, you know, work really hard. But at the same time, a lot of your clients are family people and you help them kind of navigate through that too. Can you talk a little bit about how that works? Yeah, this would be one thing that's not on my website, but 
I have talked about with every single client. I'm trying to think. I think all of them are parents right now that I'm working with. And this keeps coming up in conversation of as their coach, sometimes I have to be willing to say to them or remind them, like, what are your priorities? Your priority is your family. That's not what your calendar shows. That's not how you're living your life. Like right now, your business is the priority and it has been for how many years? So yeah, I mean, I think you need to have someone in your corner who understands your values and can hold your feet to the fire and be your reminder and also help you set up the systems and processes to allow both to function. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And I love how people oriented your advice is. When I think of like CFO, I think of somebody who's in Excel all day and like very objective and like almost robotic. But the approach that you take is very people oriented and shifting gears a little bit. You just launched a new program. And so much about being profitable is hiring people who are productive, are efficient, and are actually building your business and making you money. And you just launched People in Profit. So I do want to ask you, you mentioned at the beginning of the episode that organizational development was something that you're really passionate about. And I'm so excited for this new program that you're launching. So explain what it is and kind of the idea behind it. Yeah, thank you for asking. I'm really excited too. So it's funny how I've had this seed planted ever since college that I loved organizational development. And so the system, it's called People in Profit, is really bringing the two together. It's bringing profitability and people or organizational development together. So it's a comprehensive package of tools that allows a small business to align their team to their vision, to attract and retain top talent, which all of those together results in higher productivity and higher profitability. And so this really dawned on me when I was working with farmers because they had very large farm operations and they were notorious. The industry was notorious for just hiring anybody and everybody. And they had really high turnover, which was expensive. And so they were constantly like, just make me money, make me money. And I kept saying, okay, but labor is your biggest expense. And this is low hanging fruit that if we can try to reduce turnover and try to retain some top talent, then that's going to make a big difference on your profitability. And so I kept telling them, like, trust me, investing in your people will be worth it. They're not mutually exclusive. Like, you will have productivity and then you will have profitability. And so I've finally been able to package these systems and processes together that I have been using with clients and make it available that they can buy it off the shelf, essentially. Yeah, I think it's so smart because I think a lot of people get into business or even a career because they're really good at what they do and then they get promoted and have to learn this whole other skill set of managing people, which is a job in itself and to have a system. And again, like all of your templates, all of your hiring processes, compensation methods, like it is a lot to manage people well and make sure they're productive. How do you measure productivity from a management perspective? Part of this podcast is talking about like, what does it even mean to be productive? So can you speak to that? Like, what does that look like and how do you measure that? Sure. So I'll start at a high level and then work my way down. I think one way to measure your like people performance in a tangible way is employee engagement. And so I always recommend that my clients survey their employees and there are certain questions you can ask to determine what that engagement level is. 
I think the most recent report was globally, only 18% of employees worldwide are engaged. I was going to ask if you knew that percentage. (laughs) I know it was incredibly low. Yeah, depressing. (laughs) So, I mean, it's, yeah, I mean, it kind of makes sense when you look at the great resignation and all of that. So I would start at measuring your engagement overall. That's going to give you a sense of, I guess, like where are your people at? That's a good way to measure like profitability. That's pretty straightforward. Engagement, I think that's the biggest metric for people. To back down from that and measure productivity, it depends on what kind of business you run. But if you have projects or anything that's operations oriented, that's pretty measurable. I mean, it's pretty easy to look at point A, how long was it taking to produce a product or to deliver a service? What's the turnaround time? Were we able to streamline that and reduce that turnaround time? But even for like for our businesses, service-based businesses, you can still measure that and try to determine, is there a way that we can deliver the service or product faster or that people can pay us faster? That's would measure productivity in terms of a business sense. Interesting. That's so good. I love learning about productivity, but from a management perspective, I feel like that's really helpful because oftentimes we do only think about output, like how fast can something get done and not necessarily how engaged employees are and focusing on the more like qualitative part of being productive too, because it does make everything else easier if you actually are engaged in what you're doing. So that's really good. Are there any last like thoughts or takeaways that you want to leave the listeners with before we go into the bonus round? I would say, I feel like maybe people could consider like signs that someone might need to consider a CFO are if they're trying to scale their business. And I think we have not done a good job of defining what scale means. And so to go along with productivity, scaling means that you're increasing your revenue, but your expenses are either staying the same or they're lowering. And so how do you reduce your expenses? Well, usually it's by streamlining your operations and making things more efficient. And so if you feel like your business, that you're not seeing those profit margins increase, or if your profit margins are decreasing, or if you know that you have some big decisions to make, like hiring or opening another location, things like that, I would say those are things that it's worth it to bring in a CFO, someone who can look at the big picture and evaluate the data, but also put everything together, connect all the dots and make a recommendation. Yeah. Good stuff. All right. Let's head into the bonus round. I had two questions, but I'm going to throw in a surprise question for you. So the first one is, what is like a book suggestion? If somebody's wanting to learn more about finance, are there any good books that you'd recommend? Sure. So I don't have one single book that I love that covers everything. So my favorite thing is to just Google. Like, for a particular topic that I need to learn more about or that I don't really understand, I think it's easier to just Google it and read a quick article. But I have different books based on the subject. So just for understanding like depreciation and why corporations don't pay as much in taxes, I think a good book to get a basic understanding is Rich Dad, Poor Dad. Just for money mindset, I would say Think and Grow Rich. Those two are probably more so like personal finance focused. 
When you're thinking about scaling your business, I really like built to sell because it has you think through the mindset of how do you set up your business to run on its own and whether you sell your business or not, it's just a good framework. It makes your business less dependent on you, which gives you more time freedom. Absolutely. What about podcast recommendations for the same topic? This is really hard. Again, I usually just search for the particular topic that I want. A lot of CPAs have their own podcasts, so I don't have a particular that is my favorite. It just depends on what the topic is. I feel like every CPA and every financial expert kind of has their niche. But just in general, like I would consider this pretty deep finance, but Bloomberg's Master in Business, if you really want to have a deep understanding of finance, that's a good one. That's deep. Yeah, yeah, it is. <laughs> Another real estate one, real estate investing is bigger pockets, which they have branched out into all kinds of different, like they have a business one and yeah. Yeah. Last surprise question. As a business owner, do you have a productivity hack that you is like your go-to that saves you time that you could share? Hmm. This probably isn't a hack and this is like a no brainer to you, but something that really helped me was I had to figure out a way to streamline my client onboarding. And of course I like to do everything in a very affordable, (laughs) if not free way. So I've been able to figure out my client onboarding where they fill out the discovery form through the scheduler, which is on my website. That way I can already screen them to determine like, is this you know, should we even have a discovery call? And so they fill out that form. I get the responses. I can, I have it plugged into a file where I can keep track of everybody's responses. And so that helps me with some of my marketing because I ask, how did you hear about me? I can refer back to that to see what were the pain points or when I ask people why they reached out, what were the words that they use? So that really helps me with my marketing, which you have also suggested. (laughs) (laughs) I'm trying to think of what the next step is from there. So then I have a discovery call with them and I use Zoom for all of my recordings. And so we have our meeting on Zoom. I set it up where it gets recorded and it saves to their like Google Drive automatically. And so there's just like easy things like that, that you can do with your systems that you're using every day where it's done for you. And so it does take, you know, maybe a couple of days to like research and figure it out and set it up. But it's something that it's like, I can use that now forever. Yeah, you're speaking my language. Well, thank you so much for coming on. As always, I loved our chat. And I'm so thankful that you had the time to come on today. So thanks for being here. Yeah, thank you. This was fun. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Business Minimalist Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, I'd be so grateful if you'd rate it on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you're listening today. Your rating and review will help more small business owners discover helpful episodes each week. Don't forget to check out the show notes for the tools and resources mentioned in today's episode, because good ideas don't grow businesses, action does. And if you want more business minimalist tips and resources, head on over to Instagram and follow me at jadeboyd.co. I'd love to hear what you took away from today's episode. I'll see you next time on the Business Minimalist Podcast. The number of women burning out is at an all-time high right now, and I'm on a mission to change that. If you're a service provider who's feeling overwhelmed, overworked, and underpaid, don't let another year go by staying stuck. 
The Business Edit is a 12-month group coaching program that helps you declutter your business from top to bottom so that you can have shorter to-do lists, a clear strategy to scale, and know exactly what to focus on each week to drive results in your business. You'll end the year with the business that you've been dreaming of building, one that gives you your life back and pays you more than you've ever made before. In the program, you'll follow my signature five-step method for scaling your service-based business. You'll get business minimalist strategy, marketing, systems, and productivity roadmaps that are simple to understand and easy to implement, plus 12 months of customized one-on-one coaching to help you every step of the way. Join me inside the business edit at www.jadeboyd.co backslash coaching and get my step-by-step blueprint with everything you need to build your dream business in 2024. Now back to the show.